are we as families and communities participating in a marketplace structure that is rewarding us for making really unhealthy decisions? And at what point do we need to say, male or female, no, here's the line, you got my time, the rest of my time belongs to my family, my community, my church, and my loved ones. It doesn't belong to you. Welcome to the Women in Work podcast, the show that inspires you to confidently step into your God-given calling and view your work as meaningful to the kingdom of God. I'm Courtney Moore. And usually I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Missy Branch. But for this season of the podcast, I'm going solo. For the next several weeks, you'll hear from the contributing authors of our forthcoming book with B&H Publishing entitled Women in Work, Bearing God's Image and Joining in His Mission Through Our Work. Our team prays these conversations are not only encouraging and inspiring, but will also give you a good preview of the book itself as we chat about each chapter throughout the season. You'll also love getting to know our amazing contributing authors whose chapters I had the privilege of editing. Pre-order your copy of Women in Work at the link in the show notes. And thank you for joining our mission here at Women in Work by making a one-time donation or by becoming a monthly partner at womenwork.net slash donate. Thank you so much for joining us today. Listeners, we are so thankful you are joining us today on the Women in Work podcast. As you know, we have been taking this entire season to chat with each contributing author to our book coming out um, on June 13th of 2023. It's entitled Women in Work bearing God's image and joining in his mission through our work. And so today we have with us the author of chapter five, and that is Hannah Anderson. Let me share a little bit with you about Hannah Anderson, if you are not familiar with her yet. She is an author and a Bible teacher who lives in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia with her husband, Nathan, and their three children. Um, She's written several beautiful, beautifully written books and content that you will want to um, have in your mind and heart, Um, several of them. um, So one is called Made for More. One is Humble Roots. Another is All That's Good. She also has an Advent book that came out last December called Heaven and Nature Sing. And uh, I believe, Hannah, your husband did the illustrations in that, correct? Awesome. Yes, he did. And then we're excited to announce she has a forthcoming children's book coming out in May of 2023 called The World God Made. So Hannah's heart and goal is to encourage believers to think deeply and broadly about how the gospel transforms every area of life. And we're so thrilled she's partnered with us to talk about how the gospel transforms our work. And so um, Hannah, such a joy to have you on today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, Courtney, it is great to be with you, and I'm really looking forward to talking about work. Um, After you listed all those titles, I was listening, and I thought, that is why I talk about women work, because I had to figure out a lot of things in my own life and figure out how to make it work, for uh, lack of a better word, and that processing um, is very personal, and I'm really, really thrilled whenever I can talk about it with other women. Yeah. Well, goodness. Um, I was trying to think back of how I first learned about you. Um, I feel like I first discovered you on Twitter. You have mm. some really sharp Twitter threads and I just learned so much from you just on Twitter. 
Um, and then if you remember back, goodness, it's been a year or more, we had you on uh, for our mm-hmm. Women in Work book club. We mm-hmm. read your book, Made for More. Courtney Powell and I interviewed you, um, and we'll link to that in the show notes because we have that interview. Um, women can go back and listen to it. Um, so we were, just felt so blessed that you were a part of that, and then now to come on as part of the book is just is such an honor for us, Anna. Honestly, it's so, so great. <laughs> All right. Well, one of the things we love to do, um, if you've never listened to the show, Missy Branch and I normally co-host this together. But for this season, um, we're just taking a, I'm just, since I edited the book and she was also a contributing author, I decided to just go ahead and interview all of our authors. But one of the things we do with every guest that comes on is kind of just some fun, quick, get to know you questions. And so we'll just go through these quickly. But Hannah, as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? So I really didn't have a whole lot of dreams um, about what I wanted to be. An author was not one of them, curiously enough. But I did develop this really strange, uh, maybe it was a fantasy, maybe it was reading too many books, um, where I was going to live in a lighthouse. Okay, this would be a converted lighthouse. And I would run on the land a... um, like a boys' home for middle school boys. For boys, okay. Yes. I don't know why boys, but um, I had brother. Like for a long time, it was just me and my brothers okay. um, before my younger sister came along, and so maybe that was just growing up with boys. Um, and uh, I was going to live in lighthouse, and I was going to have a pickup truck, and I was going to have black lab, and there was going to be a caretaker, elderly man who's going to be the father figure. And now that I hear this. Maybe I was destined to be um, an author because I make up stories. <laughs> <laughs> it's very beautiful, the picture. But it's think, also very motherly. Yeah, I think there, it was curious to me because I I really don't remember like these dreams or visions of being married or hmm. um, being a biological mother, but obviously the caregiving impulse was there. And a little bit of spunk and adventure and um, that desire to alleviate um, pain and make the world a little bit better place, I think, was all wrapped up in that. That's really beautiful. Um, Have you ever visited a lighthouse? Oh, yes. Yes. That whenever we are anywhere near one, that is an obligatory stop. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, There's apparently not a lot of room to live in lighthouses now that I've been to (laughs) I mean, it's just the staircase, right? Right, right. And the keeper's cottage, maybe at the oh, bottom. That's right. Yeah. Um, but yes, for for in my psyche, for some reason, growing up, this just came to represent strength and a way of being in the world. Um, but in terms of career or work, I didn't have clarity for a very long time. Um, I didn't have a real strong sense of how my unique gifts or presence showed up in the world. And so that's been part of my journey, even as an adult is um, learning to process vocation to learning to process it as a woman um, in the church, in a world that may not know what to do with our womanhood. Um, So it's been an ongoing journey. Did you feel like, I'm just piggybacking off of this Mm -hmm. quote, rapid question. um, Did you feel like you had a specific call to ministry or this was just kind of taking step by step and then noticing, oh, I think I'm a good writer. How did that happen? I always felt 
um, an inclination toward ministry. Um, I remember at times in high school having to say, oh, wait, maybe I have to be surrendered to the fact that I may not be in ministry. Mm. <laughs> so almost the reverse of, um, you know, what other people go through. So I always felt a strong um, pull in that direction. Um, in college, I studied the liberal arts in part because I wanted to have um, a, a broad base that I could bring into a space uh, rather than a really specific um, skill set. So I think my heart has always been inclined that way. But um, if I'm honest, I don't know that I owned it for myself. Um, my husband and I married right out of college, fairly young. He was headed toward ministry. And so I think I just piggybacked um, on him in a way that, you know, I, I don't know that I would recommend. <laughs> We talk about that a lot here at Women at Work. Uh, I mean, that's really my part of my story, too, is I felt called to ministry, but I really had wrapped up my whole kind of how I was planning to serve the Lord through His call, and then through circumstances realized, oh, wait, I might, God might just want to use me for something. Yes, and that was something that kind of evolved in t- t- my awareness um, in my adult life and, and recognizing that there could be... Um, I could be called to ministry in certain ways, and even he could be called to ministry, and in those ways may not align necessarily. It may right. not be a package deal in the way we kind of always think. Yeah, and that that's totally fine. Yes, you mm-hmm. know we tend to feel angst about, oh no, I'm doing this separate thing from my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, if that's what God's called you to, run after it. You know. Absolutely. Okay, so what was your first job? Oh, my first. I mean, I worked like odd jobs um, when I was young and in, in, in high school. But my first um, like job where you had to fill out the paperwork um, was working in a greenhouse. Really? So um, it was a, a large scale greenhouse. It wasn't um, like a, a local mom and pop. It was a, um, a a company that specialized in geraniums, and they propagated their geraniums. They would supply. The smaller greenhouses who would then grow seedlings to um, full plants. So I spent many, many summers um, in warehouse sized greenhouses surrounded by plants and flowers. And it it was backbreaking work, but it's also, it was very beautiful. Gosh, that's great. Lighthouses, greenhouses, it's beautiful. Okay. So last uh, rapid question. What kind of work do you hope to be doing when you're in your latter season of life when you're 80 years old? I hope I can get to the place where I am writing um, more imaginative books. Um, I love that. So I would like at some point in my life to move toward fiction some um, or some books that um, maybe don't have as many answers and have more questions. Um, and just, I want to keep writing, but I can see, um, I can dream towards shifts and what kinds of work I'm producing. And I, and I think, I hope by the time I'm 80 that I'll have done the inner work <laughs> where I can do, write those kinds of books. That's going to be great. Oh, I can't wait. Okay, so you live in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. Is that where you grew up? And have you lived there most of your adult life? And just briefly share with us how you did come to Christ. 
I grew up actually in Southwest Pennsylvania, which is also part of the broader Appalachian chain. Um, so my um, dad, we lived on family land that had been in his family for 200 years, um, very generational um, kind of experience. And um, I was raised in a Christian home. So I don't remember a time not being um, in church or hearing the name of Jesus. And I came to faith uh, pretty young. Um, and in that space, though, of course, you have to go through a process of making it your own. And the way I've understood my relationship with Christ is that at each age and stage, your faith has to grow to meet that age. So a five-year-old's faith, confession of a child, that is a beautiful, welcome thing. But as you age and you're 20, your five-year-old faith has to grow with you to 20. So for me, um, my life with Christ has been more of a lifelong journey that began, um, you know, in the home I was raised in. Um, and we've, lived here in Southwest Virginia for last 10, 11 years. Um, this is my husband's home area. And we moved back, um, like I said, about 11 years ago. Okay. And you said he's a ministry. Is he a pastor? He is now a business administrator for a oh, church. Cool. So he had been pastoring a um, majority of our uh, married life. And I think he was asking vocational questions. And he has a very strong set of skills in administration. And so he has taken his kind of pastoral experience and has moved in on church staff um, with a, a bigger church here in our area. Um, and he keeps the church running. The way he describes it is I keep the church running so the pastors can pastor. Oh, yeah. I love that. That's really neat. And well, very good. Very good. Um, all right. So let's talk about your chapter, chapter five in the Women and Work book. So the title of your chapter is called Bodies of Work. And honestly, it's such, uh, I love the play on words you even did with the chapter, Hannah. How would you describe to our listeners what your chapter is about? Right. So our, that chapter is about how to work in honoring your fully embodied self, in honoring yourself as a person who's not just a set of um, gifts that are maybe mental or creative, but honoring the fact that we are wholly formed people and God has given us bodies and we do our work through our bodies and also we live in our bodies. So when we show up for whatever work we're called to, um, whether it's caregiving, you know, for our family, whether it's working in a corporate setting or however we do that, we are doing that in and through our bodies. And that presents some unique questions and tensions um, because I don't think our world is as fully aware that we're embodied people. <laughs> and I don't think there are structures and systems. Um, really acknowledge the way God has created us. So it was just a chance to kind of explore what does it mean to work in and through a body? It's so fascinating because it, on the outset, it, it seems so obvious. Like, yes, we work through our bodies. But like you said, there are so many facets there that we don't even consider. Um, so we're going to, you, you write about it and we're going to talk about it a little bit. So you really begin the chapter, um, sharing your unique experience of going back to work after having a baby, you're, you're going in a postpartum 
body. So <laughs> how did your workspace help facilitate uh, this postpartum body or not? A, a lot right. of women, most women have struggled with this. Right. So in the United States, we have a pretty quick turnaround about when women are headed back to work. And the less control you have over your job, the more likely you are to be back to work very, very soon. I, I talked to a friend of mine. He said his wife had to go back a week after a week. birth. And oh, no. I was listening to the story. She wasn't there. And I just wanted to, um, I don't know, start a revolution, destroy the powers that be. But it was this sense of, uh, that's an extreme situation. But it's not unheard of where depending on the lack of control you have over your job, a lot is going to be asked of you in a time when your body is clearly wanting to do other things. So I thought in my case, I had a lot of control over my work. I was working part-time. I was um, an ESL instructor, so I could even arrange my schedule the way I needed to. I was working one-on-one with clients and students. And so in my mind, compared to other women, I had an ideal situation. And I went back to work with my uh, first at six weeks, and my body didn't go back with me. (laughs) My mind was ready to go. In a way, I wanted to get back to work. And uh, women who have birth children um, who have gone through biological birth know that your body is adjusting chemically, hormonally. Your breasts are either uh, trying to create milk or trying to dry it up, depending on whether how you're feeding your child. Um, Your um, birth area is healing still. And so if you attempt to go back to work in that state, you're juggling all of these things and you're expected to juggle them privately. You're expected to hide the fact that your body is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And it's not supposed to inconvenience anyone else in your environment. You are now tasked with showing up at work, doing your job the way you were supposed to do it, and also pretending like you don't have a body. Or a and baby that you're thinking baby. about. <laughs> yeah. And the, the thing that kind of the awareness this brought to me is not every woman um, is going to be a mother. Not every mother is going to go back to work. But the, the extreme example of the individual who is trying to do these things shows us the degree to which our workplaces don't have a category for bodies. And so I offer that up in the book, not to universalize women's experience, not to say all women are mothers or anything like that. But what it did show me was the workplace had no category for when this type of body shows up because it doesn't know how to handle a body. And in particular, it doesn't know how to handle a female body. It's so fascinating because it's one of those things where, you know, when you have an experience of something, you're, you're in the moment, you're experiencing it. But to hear someone verbalize that experience with actual words and validate your experience, mm-hmm. it's so meaningful. And I feel like you've just done that. <laughs> the fact that you just acknowledge with words, this is the experience Um, it's real. You did experience it. It wasn't your fault. You were doing what your body was made to do in that moment. 
um, it, it just, just even saying it out loud and, and, and acknowledging this is the reality that many women experience. Um, it's just so good. And it just relieves, it just brings relief, you know, for some reason to have that validation. So I was going to read a quote um, from that little section of the book. Um, you were talking about how you were kind of wrestling with, man, you're, you, you wish you could just kind of snap back. Um, mm-hmm. You said, but even still, I felt the weight of it all and blamed myself. I believed that I had somehow failed because I couldn't keep up with the demands of both motherhood and work. But with the benefit of 18 years hindsight now and two additional pregnancies after which I did not return to work, I can see that my challenges, this is so good, had less to do with me and more to do with the work culture that did not know what to do with bodies, especially female ones. And then you go on and you say, to be clear, my body wasn't the problem. It was working exactly as expected in this situation. The problem was that the systems and structures around me didn't know how to honor it. They didn't know how to honor people embodied as male and female in God's image. I mean, just to hear it, just see it in black and white, to hear it, it's just like, oh, yes. I mean, it is so, so true. So Hannah, why do you think, again, like I said at the outset, it's so obvious that we work through our bodies, but how have we come to this point in work culture maybe particularly American work culture, where we somehow believe that we are disembodied, that we show up to work disembodied. And I was just thinking like, I don't know. I I, I was thinking of like going back to like Gnosticism. Yeah. Matter is evil. Spirit is good. Or even just the practicality of the industrial revolution where people began working around the clock and you just had to get it done. It didn't matter if you were tired. It didn't matter what your body was saying. What do you think? How did we yeah, get here? It's a combination of many different factors and historians of work can do this better than I can. But what I've observed is, um, especially in U.S. work culture, we are very driven um, by getting from point A to point B in the fastest, most efficient way possible and also making the most money as we go along. And so you're looking at a direct line. You're, you're like, how do we get to the objective? This is, um, if folks know my stuff, you, you know, I read Wendell Berry. And he talks about our society being driven by the objective, getting to the goal. And a lot of our uh, broader work culture is driven by the goal of capital gains. Now, I am not in any way diminishing money. Um, It is a good thing, and we should be rewarded for the work we do. However, when that direct line becomes so important, when that efficient, smooth, easiest, fastest, quickest, most profitable um, way becomes the prevailing dynamic, that fits men's bodies better than it fits women's bodies. So you have an entire system that is about going in uh, point A to point B. And we even term it in terms of the career ladder, right? Mm, you're, you're, you're exactly going right. up the rung. And that is a straight um, step after step after step, get to the goal. And the thing about women's body embodied existence is that it is much more cyclical 
Thank you. (laughs) We are cyclical through the course of our lives. Um, You know, we talk about getting back to normal. And in my 44 years, there's never been normal. There's been cycles of growth starting um, childhood, puberty, early adulthood, motherhood each month. Um, You move into um, even perimenopause and menopause. And it's like there is no normal setting. It's very, very cyclical. And it also is very communal. Um, If we think, and this, and I don't mean this in an esoteric way, I mean this in an embodied biological way. Women's bodies um, have the potential to create community within themselves. So men's bodies don't have that potential. Any community they create is going to be outside of themselves. And women's bodies can create and bear life within themselves. And at one point, they can be two people, they can be a community. Now, you take that body that is cyclical and communal and you put it into a structure that is trying to get to a point the fastest, easiest way possible that is inherently individualistic. Our our broader society in the United States is very, very focused on the individual over community. And you're just going to run up against all kinds of structural issues that have nothing to do with your body and have everything to do with the shape of our society. And and it happens in work, but it happens beyond that. Um, It's in academia, it's in education, it's in trying to show up with your family in a place and children being children, and we don't want them to be children in public. (laughs) So that's my take on it, is that our society, American society is slanted toward efficiency and individualism. And women's bodies are slanted toward communal life and cyclical nature. And both are God-given. But if society doesn't know how to honor and see the God-given blessing of a body that is cyclical and communal, it's going to create structures that support um, the types of bodies that can be deeply fast and efficient and individual. And those tend to be male bodies. So just as a follow-up, thank you very much for that. It's so clear and true. Just as a follow-up for church messages for people who might hear that and say, see, you just, you've just described all of these challenges that would lead you to say, then women shouldn't just be in the workplace. It's not made for women. You shouldn't be there. You should be at home. You should not pursue work outside of the home because look at all these challenges. The culture is is affirming you shouldn't be there. How would you respond to that? I would say that a lot of the tr- teaching in the church that has directed women home exclusively is based in coming to this tension and maybe not naming it or understanding it and saying, well, women can't flourish in the marketplace as it's designed. So therefore, logically, you must not belong there. You must belong at home. And so I think there's an underlying recognition that something's wrong. But where I would say we're making a mistake is we're willing to sacrifice women's gifts. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) We're willing to say... This is an impossible situation. I guess we're just going to have to lose your gifts. And that's not to say say that homemaking and and putting our gifts into our family 
isn't God's call. I, I am deeply committed to using my gifts, whatever they are, for the benefit of my family. I'm saying the tension that's created this dichotomy is a false one. Yes. And we cannot buy into the false dichotomy. And so what we have to do as a church is invoke the imagination of scripture and of God himself to say, wait a minute, I'm not going to buy the message that women's gifts are disposable. Now, I know the challenges of living in this moment, and I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to pretend like they don't exist. But I'm also going to say my Christian imagination tells me that women made in the image of God, gifted by his Holy Spirit, we as a church have to lead out in finding ways to support and honor those things because they are from God. Yes, These are not women who are buying into the objective of the marketplace, who are just trying to pursue, you know, their own selfish ends. These are women who are gifted and called by the Holy Spirit. And as a church community, it is our job to figure out how to help them bring those gifts forward, manifest them for the world, knowing that there's a very hostile environment against women and that it's going to be very hard for them to do that. And so we're here as brothers and sisters supporting that process. It's beautiful. We have a chapter in the book um, all about stewardship. Portia Collins wrote that chapter. Mm -hmm. And that's the entire thing. It's we've been gifted. We've been tasked by the creator to manage these gifts well, to be faithful at them. And it really goes along with the message of your gifts are nice, but they're not necessary ladies. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, we can't, we can't, we can't buy into it. Um, so thank you for that answer. I'm much more prepared to question a broken and cursed world than I am God's wisdom yes. in creating his daughters. And I think if we turn our questions in the right direction, we can recognize the tension. We can talk about limitations. We can talk about pragmatic realities. But at the end of the day, our, if we're going to question anything, we should question a society that we know is not fundamentally driven by the values of God and his kingdom. Thank you. So if women are finding themselves in this situation, I just yesterday at church had a conversation with a woman. Her baby is about three months old. She just is going back to work. She's nursing. And her her, her boss said, don't worry, we've got a space um, over here for you. You can pump, you can, you know, we're going to take care of your, uh, take care of you. And then she showed up and they didn't have a space. She was literally having to move from room to room. So what encouragement would you give women who do have to go back to work? Um, it's something that they, it's not an option for them. They need the financial income. God's called them to it. Um, what would you say to encourage these women? Well, the first thing I would say is what we've already said, that it's not you. <laughs> you and your body and your gifts are needed and welcome and they are God-given and the tension and the pain that you're feeling in trying to just show up and live your life is um, rooted in the systems and structures around you. So it is hard to push back against the shame or the failure you might feel or the tension. But the first thing I would say, this is not about you. You're, you are actually doing two things right now. You are doing your job 
and you're doing manual labor. Um, that was my, I had this like private joke whenever I, I, I am talking to a woman in this position who's either um, expecting or is postpartum and is trying to caregive with her body. I mean, I'm saying you are currently doing a second job and it's a manual labor job. It would be as if you were working on the roads or you were building construction. You are constructing a human being. So, so know that, that you are actually doing two jobs and that's why you're tired and that's why it feels overwhelming. And I would say then once you establish that and you're making pragmatic choices, we all live in this already, not yet. We all live in the brokenness and we are limited and it's not our job to overcome the brokenness. It's our job to navigate it in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and do what we believe God is leading us to and believe he will sustain us in. And there are going to be some seasons that are super hard and you feel like you have no choice and very little resources. And in those moments, you do have to kind of say, I'm doing extra work. I'm limited. I'm tired. I may have to let some other things go. It's true. You know, the things that I'm accustomed to being able to keep up with, maybe I can't work all day, feed my child and make dinner. We might be getting HelloFresh regularly, or we might be getting takeout regularly, or someone <laughs> else might be cooking. That's right. Um, so recognizing the amount of work you're already doing, making mm. pragmatic kind of decisions to minimize your stress insofar as you can, learning to say no, learning that you're not going to be able to volunteer for everything if you're in this season of life, knowing it's going to be temporary. Um, also advocating and recognize that you, when you advocate for yourself in a workplace, it is not selfishness. You just happen to be the one on which the structures came down and you are caught in the gears. But if you advocate for yourself and your child, you're also advocating for another woman that's coming along later. And you may be, in God's wisdom, the icebreaker, the snowplow that has to come first and it will be hard, um, but maybe you'll open a way for other women too. So don't be afraid to ask for what you need. Don't be afraid to advocate. It is not selfish. You are coming up against structures that need to be changed. And asking them to be changed is not selfish and personal on your behalf. You're just putting a spotlight on a structure that needs to be changed. That's so excellent. Thank you for that. So in the chapter you mentioned, uh, you kind of alluded to it when you talked about the uh, ladder, the career mm -hmm. ladder, uh, but you call it in the chapter, the success sequence. Yeah. Um, tell us what that sequence is and how women have typically interacted with it. So um, sociologists have discovered that in the United States and the way our um, systems are, are structured, that if you follow a certain sequence, you, even if you begin in poverty or in dysfunction, you can work your way out of it because of the way American life is structured. And that sequence is that you would finish your education, um, that you would begin work, you would start work um, at 40 hours a week, have a full-time job, and then you would um, have children after those things are established. So it's more about the order in which you um, arrange your life and it follows a very classic kind of traditional structure, but it's also, it works because of the way our society is structured. So, so 
if you are working and then you try to go to school, you have um, a a lower chance of actually being successful long-term. Or if you have children in a family before you try to get a job and before you go to school to complete your education. And so the idea is complete your education, establish yourself in your career, 40 hours full-time, have a family. Now, that's wonderful for men (laughs) (laughs) who can father children for almost the entirety of their lives. The problem for women is that even our education and establishing in ourselves and our career are the very years when our bodies are moving toward reproduction and birth. So what started happening for women is they are trying to follow a success sequence and they want to finish their education, but uh uh-oh, now education means having a master's degree. Now it means having a PhD. And then you don't get into work until after that. So you're looking at, you know, your early 30s before you can even begin to consider establishing a family or or having children. And at that point, um, your body has been saying, hey, now's the time to have kids. But if you do that, you will get off the success sequence and you won't find your way through the marketplace. So What this signals to me is that, again, the marketplace doesn't understand female bodies because it understands male bodies that can father children at any point along this way and can wait till their 30s. It doesn't understand female bodies um, that maybe in an earlier point would want to move toward marriage and family. Um, And there's a harder, it's harder for female bodies then to get back into the marketplace after marriage and family and to pick up a career or something like that. So again, this just shows us that the structures that guarantee success in our our marketplace and society are directed toward male bodies. They really are. Yeah. And and, and that's not like to shame. I I don't want to say that this is problematic for men. I just want to say as a woman, recognize this. Exactly. I mean, we experience it. Yeah. Understand that the pain and the tension and why it feels harder for you is maybe because it is harder to accomplish all these things that we've been told make a a successful life. And it's not that you're just whining about life. It actually, you're actually in a structure that wasn't designed for your body. Yes. Do you think um, just what you were talking about, like, let's say a woman she goes through, she gets her master's, you know, I mean, I completed my master's at 29 years old. Okay. So that is exactly what you're talking about. I had my first baby at 31. Um, so, you know, it was all, I didn't get married till I was 26. So in a sense, um, I'm following what exactly what you're saying here. And then do you think that women who, let's say they, they jump in their career they they get their degrees, they get in their career and then they decide, Oh, guess what? I, it's time to have a baby. They come out, let's say they sit out for, you know, the whole toddler experience. They're home with their toddlers. And so then when they go back in, I'm thinking about the um, gender wage gap. I mean, do you think this is part of why we see that with women being paid less than men? Because in a sense, we have worked less years than men. And that's what you often hear, even from conservatives who really value women and um, caregiving roles. And you'll hear things like, well, the company didn't get as much work at 
out of her. Therefore, that's why she's not at the same um, pay rate. That's not why she's not at the same, um, you know, she hasn't been promoted. You know, she's not willing to put the time in. And I think that there's a lot of that conversation, too, about women being more inclined to come home um, sooner than men are, and that men are somewhat more willing to um, sacrifice family and personal time mm. for the company to get ahead, to reach the raise, to you know get the promotion, and therefore some of that pay gap is happening because of. Um, and remember, we're talking in class traits here. Not everyone fits within the class dynamic, True. but on a whole, sociological data says that men are more willing to sacrifice family time and personal time to move ahead. The problem with that is if we define goodness by the pay rate that you're getting, then we've defined it based on what the corporation defines goodness as. Mm. And the corporation has said goodness in this world will be rewarded if you sacrifice your private life for us. Gosh. And I think women are just maybe pinched a little bit more in our bodies where we know we have to choose. We know we have to decide, do I stay home to care for this child that I have just brought into the world? Do I step away from work later on to help with a family need or an aging relative? And women are more inclined because of the communal dimension to say no to the corporate structure. But then the corporate structure says, well, we're not going to reward you for not investing in us. Right. And so I, I would like to change the question around pay gap to say not what women are not doing, but what are men doing that maybe they shouldn't be doing? Oh, that's good. So are we as families and communities participating in a marketplace structure that is rewarding us for making really unhealthy decisions. Mm-hmm. And at what point do we need to say male or female? No, here's the line. You got my time. The rest of my time belongs to my family and my community, and my church and my loved ones. It doesn't belong to you. And so some of that's underneath that as well. And I wonder if men drew that line in the sand, you know, if more men did that would, could that be the catalyst to change some of the, that dynamic? I don't think, obviously with women, it hasn't worked <laughs> drawing the right. line, but maybe if men decided, no, I'm going to value my family. Right. And I think what we're seeing here is a canary in a coal mine situation where women feel the weight of um, an unhealthy marketplace first yeah. and they die first. And if men could learn, the men in their lives could learn to say, that's not because you're weak or you're not committed to your job. It's because there's poisonous gas leaking into the mine and we need to get out too. And so if instead of like the kind of battle of the sexes, we could be more collaborative and men could say, if this isn't a good space for the women I love, this is not a good space Mm. for me either. Wow. And what's wrong and ask those deeper questions about how can we make our workplaces more humane and more um, suited to embodied souls. For both genders, for men and women. Yeah, no, that's so good. Um, One of the, this is another quote from this section of the book. You said, at the end of the day, the message is clear. If you want to get ahead in your career, you're going to have to deny the reality of your body. That's really for men or women. And this is definitely not what God intended for our bodies. So this is a big question. This is a big question in the book you tackle. So 
you know, let's save some for our readers to actually read. But if we go back to Genesis, which is what you do um, in the chapter, God links our bodies and our work. And you just describe it so beautifully. Um, Maybe just touch on that a tiny bit. Right. So um, I think if, if you're familiar with the text of Genesis, the first three chapters are kind of paradigmatic. They set up the world as we understand and navigate it. And it kind of gives us a lens into the structure of reality, not just what God intended at creation, but the kinds of ways um, his intents have been marred by sin and by the structures that we now operate in. So at the very, very beginning, you see this beautiful embodiment that God takes um, from the dust of the earth. He creates man, he creates woman from his side. And as part of that giving of bodies, they are then sent back into the very garden from which the dust is taken to tend and keep that garden. And from that garden, they will receive sustenance to keep their bodies alive. And so there's this, just this beautiful creational design, this wisdom of being made embodied, working through our bodies, caregiving through our bodies, receiving goodness of the garden back into our bodies. And you can think of the garden as paradigmatic of your work. Whatever it is you do, you're receiving sustenance back to care for your body, which then enables you to go back and do your work. And that's all really beautiful until we hit chapter three, when the curse descends. And in the language of the curse is that our bodies are going to bear the weight of corruption of our work. And it it is kind of gendered that, you know, for the woman, it'll be this way and man, it'll be this way. But there's an underlying principle under both um, of those passages where their bodies will bear the burden and the pain of whatever work they're trying to do. And so when we talk about a marketplace that doesn't know what to do with our bodies, or we, we talk about the tension of working through our bodies and the limitations and the pain, that really is what it means to be human in this world under the curse. So we shouldn't necessarily be surprised that's where we are. Sure. But I think we do tend to have a, a little bit of an idealistic approach to our work and our bodies that anything can be overcome. If we just Definitely. push hard enough, we can just overcome this. Just work harder, <laughs> sleep less, push, hustle, right? So it's hustle culture. But what the scripture tells us is, no, it's not just your work. It's your bodies that exist under this curse. Yeah. And you're waiting to be redeemed in your body. Right. And part of what's going to be redeemed is your work that you do in your body. And so living in this tension of already not yet, of knowing God's good design and what we should be pursuing, but also knowing the reality of it is, is where a lot of our questions need to find place. What am I running up against that is just because of the curse and the brokenness of the world? What is the ideal that I'm moving toward, that I'm hoping for, that I'm living into as, as reality? And then how do I make those decisions between those two paradoxical tensions that I live in? And that's why it's really important that we don't um, make uh, universal statements about what women should do in their work or how they should go about it. Um, Because it it really is just each individual person and each individual family navigating uh, very broken spaces. It's so true. It's so good. Well, in the chapter, so you you go through this whole section with Genesis, bringing out much of what you just said, and then you take us to the New Testament, um, and you talk about the work of Jesus in his body. I mean, just hit on that a little bit. Well, 
our hope as humans and as Christians is that our Savior lived on this earth in his body and that the work that he accomplished for us is not a disembodied work. It's not just a yeah. spiritual work. Exactly. It only affects our spirits or only affects our minds. And that um, Philippians 2 tells us that he came and took on human flesh. And it was in that body that he did the work that the father had called him to. And in fact, if he didn't have that body, redemption would not have been accomplished. And so we, we take a great deal of comfort in the fact that Jesus in a body encountered this broken world and defeated it in his mm. body. And that ultimately our hope is in the resurrection of the body, the body of Christ being raised the third day, but also our hope that no matter the brokenness we exist in, in this embodied life, that we are longing for that day when our bodies are raised newness of life as his was. Amen. Goodness. That's beautiful. So I asked you earlier how we got here in terms of viewing our work disembodied, but don't you feel, you know, you just mentioned even with Jesus, it wasn't just spiritual work. Mm -hmm. I feel like the church itself, not just the work culture, but the church itself has neglected teaching on our body, neglected emphasizing the fact that we live in bodies. Why do you think that happened? Well, I have the unique advantage of um, living in a working class community and having been raised in a working class community. I also have the advantage of all the bookshelves behind me and all the bookshelves behind you. And so I've lived in these two worlds of uh, work cultures that are very heavily bodily embodied working class spaces are very much dependent on bodies, whether it's construction or nursing or, um, you know, just the physicality of the work versus uh, cultures that are maybe slightly more professional, where a lot of the work is happening in our minds or it's happening in our creative capacities or, you know, our um, more esoteric realities. And I think we just have to be honest about historically we live in a moment that is um, post printing press, post enlightenment. You know, it's it's a time that has really emphasized our minds. True. And the church, for good or bad, has flourished in professional spaces. The, the largest churches are going to be in professional and upper class spaces. That's you know just hmm. demographic information. When you get into working class spaces, you have a very different culture within church life. And one of the things that I always loved um, in ministering in the spaces is we could advertise um, a Bible study or book study and have very, very few people turn out. And we could advertise a church work day and have everybody come out. Wow. Because the work of manual labor made more sense. And so I think part of what we're doing in the church and what we have to be aware of is the narrowness of our discipleship, mm-hmm. the narrowness of the way that we conceptualize spiritual growth, that it has to come through a book or it has to come through a study. It comes through our mind. And I think some of um, maybe the current emphasis on, on recovering like liturgical patterns or liturgical life or more embodied worship practices is because we are trying to get back to our bodies one way or another. Um, and so part of this is just historical. It's the church in a certain time, in a certain space. But we have a lot of 
wisdom from church history and from other communities and even global Christians so true. about what it might mean to recover our bodies in our work, but also to recover it in our worship and to recover it within our own understanding of what discipleship means. So good. Well, I feel like we need to wrap up. I mean, we, you still in the chapter, you give a lot of, uh, practical wisdom about how our bodies can even help us discern the calling God might be placing on our life, our limitations, or how we're maybe good at a certain thing within our own body. Um, so readers are going to learn that. Um, you also talk about how we can honor our bodies, um, taking care of our bodies and that kind of thing. And then you also give some hope um, that we as embodied workers can look to. And so um, listeners, you guys are going to, you got to read this chapter. It's so good. So you're just going to be underlining the whole thing, I promise. <laughs> so Hannah, um, I, I do want to mention before we leave again, can you remind listeners um, your children's book that's coming out? N- tell us the title one more time. Yes, it's The World God Made. Um, God and it made. is really an outflow of the other work that I've been doing in terms of kind of looking to creation and nature um, as a revelation of God. And it's actually a re- telling of Psalm 104. So Psalm 104 is a psalm about creation praising God. And I kind of took that and uh, restructured it a little bit and used that as the the framework for uh, this children's book. Well, your Advent book, Heaven and Nature Sing, that was actually um, our the board of directors for women in work, that was actually our gift to our whole team. So all oh. of our team um, enjoyed your Advent book and um, just so beautiful. We just, we just love you. <laughs> so as we wrap up, oh, and how can women, we'll link to your new children's book in our show notes, but, uh, is it on your website as well? It, not yet, but okay. it's, on Amazon. it's um, on Amazon. Yeah. People can find me at sometimes a light. Um, I have been on Twitter in the past, but recently I've been kind of, uh, I've taken a little bit of a social media sabbatical. So, but I'm out there. You can Google it. Um, Sometimes light is probably your best place to start and you can find me around. Okay. So as we close, what does maybe just one last word you would or encouragement you would want to give our listeners today who really are women who they want to honor God in their bodies through their work? What would you leave them with? I would say to um, trust that God has gifted you, to trust that he loves you and honors your body and to learn to honor your own body the way he does. And um, that's going to be hard because you're going to have a lot of messages that are asking you to minimize it, to diminish it, to deny its goodness. And a lot of times what we're fighting for is not our own goodness or, or to establish our own confidence, but to align our thinking with what God says about our bodies and our giftedness and how he intends them work together. So don't be afraid to align your thinking about the goodness of the body that God made for you. And I just need to say this, your body was generations in the making. The the exact um, makeup of DNA that God stewarded through time, through all of your ancestors, that it would finally come together in this one moment, in this unique capacity, this unique shape, this unique skin color, hair color, eye color. This has been stewarded through time to bring you into existence. And that's God's work. And we have to honor that beautiful, good thing he has been planning for generations. 
So beautiful. So much care from the heart of God to create each of us with love. Thank you so much. That is excellent. Um, again, thank you. Thank you for coming on and thank you for being a part of uh, Women in Work, Bearing God's Image and joining in His mission through our work. Thanks, Hannah. My pleasure. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. Pre-order your copy of our book, Women in Work, Bearing God's Image and Joining in His Mission Through Our Work at the link in the show notes. And thank you for joining our mission here at Women in Work by making a one-time tax-deductible donation or by becoming a monthly partner at womenwork.net slash donate. If you haven't subscribed to the show, make sure you do that as well so you don't miss a single episode. And with that, we hope you've been inspired to more confidently step into your God-given calling and view your work as meaningful to the kingdom of God. See you next time.